Amen. Philippians chapter 4, please. Philippians chapter 4, you have an outline. And uh, we're going to be talking about the subject of anxiety today. Um, some of us are experts in anxiety, you know. Well, it's better to... There you go. Somebody got it back there. We don't want to be an expert in anxiety, but we want to know how to deal with anxiety. And it's real, and it exists. And uh, it's even got a positive purpose. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Uh, there is a positive aspect of anxiety. But for the most part, anxiety shows itself in worry. And there's not a lot of positive in worry. Okay, So we'll make that distinction in a few moments here. Just a brief review of where we've been. We're in Philippians chapter 4, one of the most encouraging chapters in the Word of God that uh, almost all Christians just love. Uh, Many have memorized the chapter. It's well worth memorizing for sure. In verse 1, it starts with, Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Paul isn't a flatterer, but this is a church that he loved, and these are people that he cared for with all of his heart. You can tell from the words that he uses. Verses 2 and 3, I won't read them, but deal with an internal uh, dispute within the church between two ladies. And it wasn't a doctrinal dispute, and it wasn't uh, probably anything more than an interpersonal clash. Maybe their personalities didn't go together well. Or maybe there was some rivalry or jealousy. We don't know what the problem was. We're left in the dark on purpose so that the principles can be applied. But these are two godly ladies that are urged to be of the same mind in the Lord. Unity. Because if they're not united, it has the ability to actually, for Satan to come in, and bring disunity to the entire church. Verses 4 through 7, of course, we're going to deal with with, uh, 6 and 7 today, but uh, I'll wait on those too. They basically tell us how to maintain peace with God. But uh, we get down to verses 8 and 9, which, Lord willing, we'll deal with next week. Paul tells us how to think in order to have true peace. It's actually a remedy against anxiety, I won't deal with that this week. We'll wait till next week to do that. But if you're suffering from anxiety, verse 8 is a positive prescription of how to deal with anxiety and how to think. We often cause our own problems. You know, there's, there's truths that are just taken out of balance and become untruths. Uh, think of a guy like Robert Schuller and the power of positive thinking. Well, you know... Positive thinking is better than negative thinking, okay? I'll give Mr. Schuler that credit there, okay? Positive thinking is better than negative thinking, but we must not think that that's the answer to everything. But we often hurt ourselves tremendously by the things we think about and how we think about them. And we'll deal with that next week. And then, as we go to verses 10, 11, and 12, you know, Finishing up in 13. Well, we'll deal with that another week. But that has to do with contentment. Are you content? And can you be content? So these are the subjects that Paul is dealing with. They really roll upon each other. They roll and they roll and they roll. And, and many scholars and, and um, those that interpret the Bible have not seen the connection between these things. But they're, I think, purposely connected. 
and uh, they form a great unit when we look at them together. So that's why I just wanted to remind you of them together. So, 6 and 7 is what we look at today. Let's read it. I'll read it to you. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That's our subject today. We're dealing with anxiety. And um, as we look at verse 6, be anxious for nothing. We have to dig deep into the Greek for that word nothing to find out what it means. And pull out your Greek dictionary, and you know what you're going to find? Nothing means nothing. Ah, there's a theologian for you. Can't do that. Nothing means nothing. And uh, it's certainly true. It doesn't mean everything except your mortgage payment. Doesn't mean everything except the inflation rate. Nothing means nothing. Because worrying doesn't change a thing. We're given positive direction as to what God would have us to do. Prayer and supplication seasoned with thanksgiving. That's what we're supposed to do. And it's not uh, just forget all your troubles. It's take all your troubles to God. Let your requests be made known to God. You know, I haven't said anything profound yet, really, right? But it's a lot easier to say than it is to live. A lot easier to say than it is to live. Because there's so much we can be anxious about in this life. Our health. You get sick, and I don't know about you, but when I'm sick, that's what I spend a lot of my time thinking about, how sick I am, you know. And my wife gets on my case and says, you know, you need, you take it to your deathbed again, you know. So, well, I try not to do that. But our health can cause us trouble. The health of our loved ones can cause us trouble. The future, our finances, the security of our jobs, my relationships, are they going to fall apart? All these things, you know. And you know what they all spring from? They spring from one central idea. And the central idea is that we want to be in control. And that's really the key to the text. Be anxious for nothing. Why are we anxious? Well, we want to be in control. And we know that there are things that are outside of our control, things that we can't handle. Well, ask yourself this question. Do you really know what's best in a fallen world? Do you really know what ought to happen? Are you absolutely correct and are you absolutely right? And if you were running the world, oh, wouldn't the world be a much better place than it is today? You see. Well, it's easy to fall into that trap. And sometimes the providence of God puts us in difficult places, places that we would never choose for ourselves, And uh, Paul writes this while he has plenty of time to think. You know, Paul's a doer, always on the move. Just just look at his travels. He's always going. He's always preaching. He's always working. If he's not doing the Lord's work as far as proclaiming the word of God, he's willing to to, uh, roll up his sleeves and make tents so that he can provide for himself and provide for others. He's a doer. He's a goer. But right now, as Paul writes Philippians, all he has is time. He's in the jail cell. 
All he has is time. He's not going anywhere, and he really isn't doing anything except writing the inspired word of God that we still have today and we still read today. Now, that's pretty incredible when you think about it. Paul wouldn't have, wouldn't have made that choice. Oh, Lord, put me away in a monastery someplace so I can think, you know, or, or put me in jail. Then I'll have all this free time. Well, all the words that Paul said were extremely profitable as he preached the word everywhere he went. But now we have the benefit of what he has written, not just Philippians, but the other prison epistles too. And that's God's providence because guess what? God knows what's best. And God always does what's best. And believe it or not, it was best for us and the world that Paul was in prison. That was what was best at that time. Well, Paul really had learned to be content. Paul really had learned not to be anxious. It wasn't that Paul was never afraid. You know, let me just do a word study on anxiety here. Anxiety as far as worry is not profitable, is not helpful, is not going to do us well. In fact, it causes us harm. However, there's an aspect of anxiety that is good. Anxiety drives us, causes us to do something, maybe gives us energy, gives us wings to do something and to actually be concerned and because of concern, take action. And um, the Greek word for anxiety there can be found in Philippians 2.2. Turn there, sorry, 2.20. Philippians 2.20, same Greek word, same root there in Philippians 2.20. He's talking about Timothy. We'll go back to verse 19. But I trust in the Lord to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. Now, that's a root of the word anxiety. Now, it wouldn't be correct in our English usage to say, I have no one who will sincerely have anxiety for your state. Because now they're not talking about worry. But the Greek word can have that aspect of worry, but it can also have the aspect of care and concern. Care and concern is a good thing. Care and concern is a motivator, you know. So, you know, like I say, when you develop skill in anxiety... Go ahead and be caring. Be as caring as you possibly can, and you'll be right. But uh, don't be the worrier as such. It does no good. It does harm. In 1 Corinthians 12.25, don't need to turn there. It's on your outline. 1 Corinthians 12.25 says basically the same thing, uh, that uh, there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. Care is the key word there. Same root as anxiety. That's why I put it there. So it's not wrong to be concerned. It's what you do with that concern. That concern can drive us into action. And it's even built into us by God. Believe it or not, it's actually built into us by God. The adrenaline kicks in and the flight or fight pattern takes place. So really, we need to look at it from two 
aspects. But obviously from context, when Paul says, be anxious for nothing, he's telling us not to worry. Okay, But he doesn't say just be anxious for nothing and leave it at that. He says, be anxious for nothing but with prayer. Notice again. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, you know what prayer means. Um, I would imagine none of us pray as much as we ought to pray. You know, that's just a great way to humble a Christian, if they'll be humble enough to give you an answer, is uh, how is your prayer life? And almost everybody says, well, uh, I wish it was better, you know, because prayer is hard. It really is. Prayer is difficult. We have to take time. We have to clear our mind. We have to have a conversation with God. And that conversation is different than the conversations we have with people because we interact with people and we talk to them and they talk back to us and, and our conversations flow like that. But when we're dealing with God, well, we're the ones speaking, and our mind can be racing. And if it's racing towards the things in Scripture, because God speaks to us through Scripture, what a profitable time that is. But we all know that uh, our minds can go, go racing to what I have to do today. Mind can be racing while we're praying. We can actually be worrying in prayer. I mean, these are just truths that we need to, to be careful with. So pray. Pray. Come to God by faith. It's a common Greek word. It's a common Old Testament word. Prayer. And we find the battles of God are won with prayer. And do it with supplication. Supplication is to beg. It's urgency. With thanksgiving. Don't just ask. And never be thankful to God for what he has done. You know, how, how horrible it would be to your parents who are providing for you and helping you. You know, the ungrateful child never says thank you, right? And they need to say thank you. We need to say thank you. We need to say thank you to each other. Otherwise, we're simply being ungrateful. But do make your requests. Notice that. It says to actually... Let your requests be made known to God. Don't think that they're too trivial. Don't think they're too small. Don't think that God actually wouldn't care about me. And we need to come to him in prayer by faith. It's very common. I don't know how many people actually do this. But you see it in TV, you see it in movies all the time. A person comes to a crisis point in their life. They walk into a church. How many times have you seen that? Of course, it's always a beautiful church, like a, a Roman Catholic church with a fine architecture or an Anglican church with fine architecture. They walk in there, the wood pews. Aren't you glad we don't have wood pews? You know, they're padded. Well, somewhat padded, you know. But they walk into the church. They sit down, and uh, they bow their head, and they start saying, God, if you're up there, you know, hardly the prayer of faith. You know, hardly the prayer of faith. But it's very common, very common. That's not the prayers we ought to have. We ought to come in faith believing, come before him, 
and let our requests be made known to him, and then leave those requests at the throne so that he can answer them in the best way that he possibly could. The worst thing that Paul could have done while he was in prison would have been to pray, Lord, deliver me from this prison. I have so much that I need to do. Lord, will you let me out of this prison? Lord, I can't stand it in this prison any longer. All I can think about is the drudgery. All I can think about is, is how difficult it is. I can think of the bad conditions that I'm in. It's a very negative place. Okay, I don't know. You, you could do that, but it's not profitable. It's not going to help. It's not going to be good. Let your requests be made known to God. I find it, you know, we're, we're supposed to pray with importunity. But I find it interesting that after praying three times for the Lord to heal Paul, the answer to Paul came back, my grace is sufficient for you because my strength is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul says, so I'll glory in my infirmities. You know, because that's the will of God. Uh, we're not going to have God talk to us like that as a, as a general rule and what we would expect. But God did speak to Paul. And so Paul said, okay, I got my answer. Don't need to pray about that. I know now that what I need to do is to put feet to those prayers. And I need to change my attitude and realize that I'm going to have this affliction. And God's going to be glorified in it. So really, we're talking about living a life of faith, you know. Um, Make your requests made known to God. And James is the one that told us we have not because we ask not. And and those things can be really difficult to put together theologically. But uh, we need to, to realize as important as putting things together theologically is, uh, we have human responsibility that we need to always keep in the forefront of our mind, you know. So the end result of living a life of faith, by doing the things that it says, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. What's the end result of that? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. You know, the end result of living a life of faith is the peace of God. And the peace of God is a wonderful thing to have. Now, there's an example in the scriptures, and that's on your outline there. Christ is an example of anxiety without sin and with prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Greek word anxiety would fit for the experience of what? Christ was going through because he cared. And he was, in his spirit, heavy and grieved to the point of even sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. You know, And the pain that he had endured would be great. But as horrible as the idea of the cross was, it was the sin-bearing aspect that bears down on the sinless one the hardest. So what does he do? He prays. And he asks his three closest human companions to pray also. He takes them into the garden with him. And he asks a simple question, a simple request, I should say. Pray with me for one hour. 
I'll be honest, it's hard to pray for an hour. It is. But he says, this is a crucial point. Satan would love to have you, Peter. Okay. You're all going to betray me tonight. You're all going to go your own ways. You're all going to leave me. Pray with me for one hour, lest you fall into temptation. Well, they didn't fall into temptation. They fell into sleep, right? So they didn't fall into overt sin, but their eyes were heavy and they were sleeping. Now, I have a lot of sympathy for anyone who gets a little hot and tired and and eyes get heavy and they may even fall asleep in church. You've never heard me call, you've never heard me call out somebody uh, that fell asleep in church because I've fallen asleep in church. (laughs) Not while I'm preaching. (laughs) It's, It's hard. Your eyes are heavy and you're trying hard to stay awake. And it seems like you're just fighting a losing battle, you know. Well, that's what happened here. And the Lord actually had pity on them, being a man himself. He knew what it was like to be tired. He knew what it was like to be exhausted. He was exhausted himself. And now he's going to have to go through this horrible ordeal, you know, knowing exactly what's going to happen to him being betrayed into the hands of sinners, becoming the sin bearer. He's going to go through an entire sleepless night, go through excruciating agony. And excruciating is a good word uh, because uh, the word cross is in there, uh, in the Greek. Excruciating, that's where we get that idea from. And he's going to go through all of that. And the worst part, of course, being the three hours of darkness where the sins of all of his people are placed upon him in a way that is too horrible to even imagine. In Gethsemane, he saw the cup. Figuratively speaking, he saw the cup of the wrath of God. And he knew that he'd have to drink it down to its final dregs. Well, I was perusing Facebook, which isn't often the most profitable thing to do, (laughs) but it can be helpful from time to time. I've got a pastor friend in Tennessee, and uh, he put on there some thoughts, I think it was Friday he did it, some thoughts that he'd had, uh, devotional thoughts. He's preaching on Mark 14 this week, and he's talking about Gethsemane. And I was already thinking about Gethsemane and talking about Gethsemane, as I just did, and he made some points about sleep and sleepiness, which really isn't anxiety. It's kind of the opposite. You know, if you're wrecked with anxiety, you're probably not going to sleep very well. You're going to lay awake, tossing and turning and worried and concerned, you know, and thinking about these things over in your mind again and again. But there's also the temptation to be sleepy. And so I put it on your outline there, and I give credit to Tyler Krug, uh, who is a friend of mine there in Tennessee, And he says, like sleepiness, you don't necessarily have to do anything to experience temptation. Simply not doing anything, not being watchful, is sufficient to put yourself in a dangerous position. Watch with me one hour. Pray with me one hour. And they fall asleep. Okay, They didn't do anything, but that was the problem. They didn't 
do anything. And second of all, like sleep, indulging certain temptations can seem like something I could never do. But by not keeping guard, that sin you thought you defeated and your desire to give in can be every much as strong as your desire to doze off when your eyes are heavy like the disciples. That's why we need to watch and pray. Third of all, like fighting falling asleep, Jesus confirms that we can have a genuine desire to fight temptation, but that sometimes our sinfulness, or our weakness, I could say, renders us too weak to overcome. And so Christ dealt with them very gently in their weakness as he comes to them. And fourth of all, we must gain strength by being actively watchful and prayerful, looking and doing the right things, not merely trying to avoid the bad things. So I thought that was pretty good. You know, I've I profited from it, what Tyler had to say. He's a young man there. Tyler has always reminded me a lot of, of jihad, you know. So I guess I have a special affinity for him, you know, back there, whenever we got a chance to get together in Tennessee. So the end result, verse 7, the peace of God, you know. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Jesus said, peace I give you, not as the world gives. Peace, the opposite of anxiety. Now, there's a subtle little word here that's worth looking at. Uh, and uh, the peace which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The word guard kind of stood out to me. So I decided to do a word study on it, see what it has to say. The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. And um, the Greek word translated guard works very much like our English word guard does. You know, there was a Roman guard that was chained to Paul. We've talked about that. We know that to be true. And those guards would trade off. But guard doesn't necessarily mean one person. There can be a royal guard, for instance. And now you're talking about the group. You know, you're talking about the garrison, so to speak. And the Romans had a garrison that surrounded Philippi and protected it as a colony of Rome. And I don't think it was any accident that Paul chose that particular word to give to the Philippians. Because that garrison... Well, that powerful garrison stood for all the Roman Empire stands for. And if you were to attack that garrison, you'd be attacking Rome itself. And, well, Rome doesn't like being attacked. They'll come at you with the full force of whatever it was that they had. They were the most powerful nation on earth. Paul lets us know that the creator God of all of the universe, and I'm sure most of you have seen some new pictures of the universe recently with the, with the uh, telescope, you call it a telescope, that we sent up there to take the place eventually of the Hubble telescope and brighter images and farther images and amazing images and we wonder and we marvel and, and we try to even figure out what some of this stuff is. The one who created the entire universe is actively guarding our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. 
Now that's an amazing thought. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that you visit him. But he does. He does. We're his children. He loves us. He cares about us. And we're on his heart, so to speak. You know, well, we'll guard your hearts and minds. I just really think that Paul used that purpose to the Philippians on purpose and that we can profit from understanding that too. Now, turn, we have time. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. We don't have time to do an exegesis of 1 Peter chapter 5. Again, one of my favorite chapters in the scripture. Uh, had the privilege many times to preach ordination services for, for various men um, when they're moving to a new church and such like that. 1 Peter 5 is almost always where I go to do that. 1 Peter chapter 5. And we go a little further down than verses 1 through 4, which talks about um, of the, the elders who are among you, starting in verse number 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's basically Proverbs three thirty four. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Now, obviously, that passage right there is what, what uh, drew me to this because we're talking about anxiety and it can be care. Okay. Well, when it says God cares for us, that's not the word that comes from anxiety. And I looked that up. I thought maybe it was. It, it, is, it isn't. But casting all your care upon him is. Okay. You cast all your care. Now, that's pretty cool that they did that in English. It doesn't come across that way in Greek. It's two different words. But in English, this works very well. And I like the way that it's put here. You know, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Just like anxiety has that kind of double idea behind it. Our English word care does too. We can have cares that go far beyond concerns. We can have cares that go to anxiety. But cast all your care upon him. And that idea of care, uh, of casting, is important too because it's linked in with humility. Uh, Another interesting, at least to me, portion is that you look at verse 6 and 7. And while there is no punctuation in the Greek, uh, almost every translation I looked at did this very, very properly and understood what they were supposed to do. Because we have a tendency to read verse by verse. You know, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. We stop. New sentence, we think. Wait, how could that be a new sentence? Casting is in small print. It's not a capital letter. So maybe there's a typo in your Bible. Typos have happened in Bibles, by the way. The inspired word of God is never wrong, but typos can happen. Not a typo. The translator is picking up on something. This word casting is linked to humble. Humble is the subject, you know. Uh, Humble yourselves and then 
because of that, the participle casting, you know. Because we've humbled ourselves, we can cast our cares. It's all one sentence, that's what I'm trying to say. So we need to read 6 and 7 together. And our English punctuation actually helps us to do exactly that. So here you go. You, you can know something if you didn't even know Greek. You can figure it out. You know, Greek is important and Greek is helpful. But your English Bibles are good Bibles. If you have a, a good translation, and there's a number of translations that are good. I, I think my three favorite are the New King James and, and uh, the ESV and the New American Standard. And uh, you're not going to go wrong with, with those. You know, th- those are good translations. There's other ones, too, that can help you and be profitable. But those are the three that I prefer, uh, each of them for our own different reasons. And, and you don't have to be a Greek expert to know the Bible. Sometimes I think, you know, I want to be careful when we talk about the Greek that you get an idea, well, I can't understand the Bible because I don't know Greek. No, it's not true. Not true. Your, your English Bible is doing a very good a very good uh, job of giving you the sense. We're to humbly cast our cares, our anxieties on the Lord because we realize we're not in control because we know that he is in control and he is concerned about us. He lovingly cares for us, not with anxiety, but with care and concern of a, a father. He loves us and he cares for us. But he's never anxious, never anxious. Matthew six twenty four through 27. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life. It's on your outline. Do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And Jesus goes on to say, look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? Okay. You know, there there are people in today's world that really need to understand that principle that a human being is of more value than an animal. Some people really kind of lost that idea, believe it or not. And um, it's ridiculous, but there's a lot of ridiculous ideas that are going on in the world. But don't worry about your life. And you can worry all day long. You know, I never made it to six foot. The highest I've ever been measured was 5'11 and a half. (laughs) Now, there's some advantages to that. I've never taken advantage of it. Uh, I could be a center in an under six foot basketball league, you know. Could have been. <laughs> I don't think I'd do that anymore. Okay. But never really made it to six foot. And I thought that I would, because when I was in eighth grade, I was 5'10". Eighth grade, 5'10"? Oh, man. Where are you going to top out at, you know? Well, I would leave it to my sons to, to break the six-foot barrier there, which they have done, you know. But you can worry about it, and you can try really hard You can put yourself into a stretching machine and you can stretch yourself out to six foot. But you go back down. (laughs) It won't last. So you can, it was a good example that Christ used and he didn't give an inch. He didn't say it was an inch. He said a cubit, which we would estimate at about 18 inches. Well, we certainly can't do that. 
Other, others have said, well, you know, there, there's a variant that says you can't, add, um, you can't add an hour to your life. Okay, you worry about it, but it's not going to happen, you know. Well, here in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, Peter is paraphrasing from the Greek translation of the Hebrew, Psalm 55.22. You probably know Psalm 55.22, which is, Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he'll sustain you. And that Greek word translated burden there is translated care or anxiety here, as Peter refers to it, casting all your care upon him, casting all your burden upon him, casting your burdens on the Lord, for he cares for you. He cares for you. That's why we can do it with confidence. Because I'll say it again, Christian friend, he loves you, his good pleasure is for you, And God is more than capable of handling all of your problems. Our job, our challenge, is to trust him. Christ reminded us of the lilies of the field. Just got through my devotions reading about Solomon recently. And his splendor and his glory and all that he achieved. And Christ said, God's clothed the lilies of the field in more splendor than Solomon. More splendor than Solomon had. We just read a few moments ago, the birds are fed by God. If he does that for them, won't he take care of you? Well, humility. Do not undervalue humility. Humility is vital. So how do I become humble? It's not by trusting yourself. It's not by trusting in your own righteousness. It's not by trusting in your own abilities or my own abilities or our great planning to figure it all out. It's not by seeking the approval of men. Humility is giving it all to God. On your knees, giving him all the praise and glory. On your knees, looking to him alone. On your knees, admitting that you do not have the ability and you do not have the strength but you're coming to the one who does to do his will in your life. We have a powerful enemy. He's Satan. I'll just read the rest of the passage without doing any exposition of it. Verse 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you've suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. To conclude, back to Philippians 4. You don't need to turn there. I'll just summarize it for you. Philippians 4, verse 4, said, Rejoice in the Lord always, at all times. Be full of joy. 
And then verse 5 tells us to be so full of gentleness, to be so full of graciousness that the world can see it. And then we're told in verse 6 to let your requests be made known to God. Three difficult commands, and they are in the imperative. Three difficult commands, but commands that make our life so much better if we'll heed what God has said. And he assures us that if we obey these marching orders, we'll discover that the peace of God will be like a garrison guard around our hearts and minds that will keep us from the attacks of the evil one. Peter says, resist the devil. Resist the devil. Well, other place, resist the devil and he'll flee from you, it's been said. You know. As I said earlier, anxiety is not necessarily a sin. But it is in the context that's used in be anxious for nothing. To be anxious in that way is hurtful and hard. And it's a form of pride. Like it or not, it is a form of pride. It's a desire to be in control. Something we cannot control. We want to be in control. But he can. And so the antidote to this kind of worry is prayerfully trusting God. It's not an easy thing to do, but let me ask you this final question. What have you accomplished by worrying about it? Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, it's so easy to be a worrier. We could even, we'd never say it, but we could in our practicality of life, say, why pray when you can worry? But Lord, we know it's just the opposite. We need to be prayerful. We need to be looking to you. We need to be trusting you. Father, help us to do that. Those of us that are your children, Father, we pray that you would help us to keep you ever before our minds, our hearts and minds, that you will guard them, that you will guard them by your grace with your peace. And Lord, there may be some here that do not have the peace of God that passes understanding because they're still in their sin and they've never come to Jesus Christ and looked to him by faith alone. Father, I pray that you would convict them, show them, give them even a holy jealousy for the people of God so that they too will turn from their sin and find a Savior, the only Savior of sinners, the Lord Jesus Christ looking to him by faith and faith alone. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for Jesus Christ, the Lord. In his name we pray, amen.